Hello and welcome to the Second Tier Podcast. I'm Ryan Dilks and I'm joined by the Christian Stellini to my Ryan Mason. It's Justin Peach. Good day to you, Ryan. Justin, how are you? I'm, uh, I'm all right. I'm a little bit sad. The season's going to be over in literally one month's time, um, which is quite disappointing. But we, we've had an exciting few weeks, but it just means we've got to go again for next season. But other than that, I'm, uh, I'm tipped up. How are you, Ryan? I'm going to ask you. Yeah. I'm great. I'm great, thank you. Yeah, you are right. The season literally has a month left, or we've got two rounds of games, and then it's the playoffs where we only have five games over the space of a few weeks, don't we? So Mm. in terms of championship action for us to chat about, we're on our last legs, aren't we? But it is weird into how we finish on such a high Mm. with the final day of the season and then the playoffs, and then we've got three months or so of nothing (laughs) It just yeah. it just really leaves you hungry, doesn't it? Always, always. And obviously there's no tournament football because, again, we've been quite fortunate in that we've had a lot of international football in between seasons over the last couple of years, I think. I am right in saying that. So, yeah, no, no I'm not. Just no, had the no. delayed Euros, um, the women's Euros, and obviously the World Cup in Qatar. So, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. And we're not going to have anything for... The, the upcoming three months are we I'm more disappointed at well the top two is basically done now isn't it but yeah. it is done in fact and it got me thinking about the last time we actually had a race for automatic promotion it doesn't feel like we've had a a serious one that's gone down to the final day now for a long time in fact it may have been the last time we're in lockdown yeah, although, again, West Brom and Leeds sort of tied that up quite with like three or four games to go again, didn't they? There was a no, little I mean bit the, of a race. The Was it the one where Fulham got promoted? No. What was the oh. one where it was Brentford, Fulham and maybe West Brom on the final day and it all changed, chopped and changed on, on the last day? And I think they may have all lost as well. I can't... You know what? That's only like a year ago, I think. <laughs> it's quite difficult no, to I remember. Think it, I think it was 2020. So it's been, I think I think we've had three seasons since where we've just had automatic promotion sewn up quite early on. Yeah. So yeah. in that respect, it would have been nice to have something this season because I thought Sheffield United Middlesbrough might do that. But no, but congratulations to Sheffield United on their promotion to the Premier League. Let's have a chat about that, shall we, Justin? Welcome to the number one championship podcast, the second tier. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. Yes, we've got three games, three massive games that we've got to talk about from the midweek in the championship. We'll also look ahead to another big weekend in the championship. Me and Justin will each make our predictions. We'll make a banker prediction and also an outsider, which we think will win. Talk about some of the news from the past few days and then we'll finish off with did he or didn't he. So, as I say, congratulations. Congratulations to Sheffield United who have been promoted back to the Premier League after a 2-0 win at home to West Brom. And they did it in a very professional fashion. They kept West Brom at arm's length, kept plugging away and eventually found their way through with Sander Berger, a lovely dummy by Illiman and Dai for that goal. He essentially turned it from a half chance into a must score with that mm-hmm. bit of skill. And that's the kind of quality that you get with the Sheffield United players, isn't it? And then Amel Adbag-Hodzic doubled the lead a short while later and the Blades were as good as Premier League at that point. And they deserve a place back in the Premier League as well, don't they, Justin? They do. They've been exceptionally efficient this season without really hitting top gear. I think we saw against Burnley what the Sheffield United team could do, but I don't think they've managed to repeat that performance on many occasions this season. And whilst I wouldn't say performances have been disappointing, 
I think with every game, you've been left wanting a little bit more from this Blades team. And it's not a criticism. It's probably you know a little bit, maybe a little bit because of criticism actually, but it's it's more of a, an indictment of what they can and what, what they are uh, capable of under Paul Heckingbottom. They're a good, aggressive team. They, they're they very good in that press. Um, and they're exciting and they get the tails of the supporters. And when that happens, it, it does it does make it a lot more entertaining to watch. So... And they've got individual quality. We saw it with Sander Berg, Eliman and Dai. They've got James McAtee. He's 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 rose to the occasion. Tommy Doyle um, has shown it in 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 elements this season. They've got a lot of quality in that team um, that can win games, and and they've shown that. Yeah, it's just a, a nice, efficient team mixed with you know the X factor. I guess you need in in, in teams to to be the difference in tight games. So really well balanced team and, and a very professional season from from Sheffield United. Yeah, I think if. If Middlesbrough didn't have that three-month false start, maybe they would have caught them. I certainly think they would have made up for that 11-point gap had they had Michael Carrick in charge all season. But, I mean, Sheffield United have got 85 points with three games remaining. You'd imagine they get 90-plus points, and that would have been enough for automatic promotion in six of the past eight seasons, which says a lot about how good they've been this season and how much they do deserve promotion because they do an obvious thing to say when they're second but they seriously do they had just one spell where they were wobbling and if Sheffield United were a boxer and their opponent was staying in the championship in sentient form they'll have spent the first six rounds absolutely battering it with right hooks haymakers etc then the final six rounds, they'll have just spent with their guard up, simply dodging jabs and holding on because they know they're going to win on points. There was a moment in the 10th round where they took a straight jab, which rocked them a bit, but they managed to overcome that and get back to their senses and just stick to the game plan, which was just keep winning games. And that's what they've done. They haven't been amazing in the past six months, but they've been very good in the past six months. And considering... How well they were in the how well they did in the first six months. That was enough to get them over the line, despite the oncoming challenges from a distance, really, of Middlesbrough and Luton. So I suppose the big question is, Justin, how will they do back in the top flight? It's quite difficult to say. I, I do like the makeup of this Sheffield United team, and they showed under Chris Wilder that they are capable of pushing on. I think the only the only worry that I have is maybe they lack a little bit of quality. You'd need to at least survive not comfortably but finish outside at bottom three it's you know it's pretty much the same team give or take one or two players the you know, rise of uh, Indai, um the signing of Ahmed Hozic yeah there, there's a couple of players there that are different that are new to the side compared to that one that came down from the Premier League a couple of seasons ago so is it is a team really that different no it does need a lot adding to it I think they're a good side aggressive side and that's going to serve them in good stead but over the course of the season it's not going to be easy to sustain that in the top in the top flight but should they get the ownership situation sorted and you know be able to bring players in that's going to help them but it could also hinder them if that doesn't happen so it's it's one of those where it's it's relying on things outside of Heckingbottom's control I think. My initial thoughts are that the aim will simply be to stay up. I look at Burnley and think they've been so comfortably promoted that they can look to do more than that. Sheffield United have a lot more work to do. They're going to have to have a blinding summer in terms of recruitment. But the foundation is there of a good Premier League side. And Adbuk Hodzic is 
a ready-made Premier League defender. Sander Berger should be in the Premier League anyway. Oli Norwood's come off the back of a cracking season. Iliman Ndiaye has been one of the best forwards in the division. And there's a reason he's been linked with a lot of Premier League clubs. Mm. There's a good spine to start off with there. But they'll need to spend a fair bit of money and be extra clever with their incomings this summer. The question is, what's the club situation with the takeover? Uh, seemingly not happening now. I assume Premier League money will massively help, but how much of the money they get from the Premier League will be used on the playing squad this summer immediately. They've got a lot of players who are out of contract as well, who need tying down to new deals, but we'll see. I definitely think they can stay up, but I imagine they'll start this season as one of the favourites to go down with the bookies. That was the case when they went up with Chris Wilder, and look how that went. I think Paul Heckingbottom, with him in charge, they've got the right man to lead them into the Premier League it's just he'll need backing and the recruitment is going to be so crucial to mm -hmm. their chances of staying up it is back-to-back -back losses for West Brom they remain ninth two points outside the top six their final games are Norwich at home and Swansea away who are of course all of a sudden the form team in the championship Tricky to know how they'll do in these games because it's tricky to know what West Brom will, what West Brom side will turn up. That's it, isn't it? It's been a it's been one of those where I've been impressed by them, but I've been frustrated by them over the last few weeks. And I think coming away from this game, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm frustrated by them. There's a lot of there's a lot of errors. I thought they started this game pretty well. Um, obviously, Carl and Grant had that chance, uh, and there was a really good double save, although it was offside from Fodringham. So there was, there was something there that's you know, a bit of a spark, but they failed to build upon that um, relatively positive start. And, and you know, Sheffield United took control of the game, and I think that's a disappointing thing, and that's what Carlos Coburn won't want. Um, he wants to have control of the game, whether that's with the ball or without the ball, and they just they just didn't, um, and they were dictated, and that's, that's the disappointing thing. And if you're going into or you're trying to push on for the top six and you're in that position, it's not, it's not ideal by any means, but... Yeah, it's difficult to to know what team's going to turn up. If if this team turns up, the one that lost to Sheffield United, then yeah, they're not going to finish in that top six. But if the uh, yeah a, a confident or well not confident, but a structured, disciplined um, West Brom side with conviction turns up, they'll get results. But those performances are too few and far between at the moment. Yeah, look, there's it's very simple in my mind, and the fact is that some some of the teams who are also fighting for the playoffs have easier games than West Brom because Norwich at home and Swansea away is tricky. I'd be looking at Norwich at home and think that's that's a game they should be winning because Norwich have been so far off it now for quite some time. And if they want to get in the playoffs, they've got to win that game. Swansea away has suddenly become a really, really tricky game. And I wouldn't want to be playing Swansea right now, but I think West Brom may have to be looking at and looking to get at least four points but they may have to win both games because of the gap the gap they've got to make up and the fact that teams around them have got easier games than them so it depends what West Brom's side does turn up because we have seen the one that played against Stoke uh, uh, two weeks ago or three weeks ago that was a really good West Brom performance and if they if that team shows up against, against Norwich they should win if it's the one that has quite recently lost to Rotherham, for example, mm -hmm. or drawn to QPR over the Easter weekend, then they'll probably come out of that with a draw. And I, 
even West Brom at their best in recent times, I think would struggle against Swansea at their best recently because Swansea have just been amazing recently. So it's tricky. It's really tricky for West Brom. They've obviously got a great chance, but it they have been their own worst enemy at times. And I don't know how many points they're going to have to get from these two games, but they've got to be looking to get at least a win against Norwich and then see where they're shaping up in that big game against Swansea on the final day. Burnley being crowned champions after beating big rivals Blackburn 1-0 in the East Lancashire derby. It was Manuel Benson with a beautiful goal, although he seems to have scored the same goal a million times this season. He cuts him from the right, curls it into the top, uh, the far top corner. He is some player though, isn't he? He's fantastic, and I'm glad you brought that up because I brought, I've got the stats for his types of goals. Um, nine of his goals have come from cutting on onto his left foot from the right-hand side. They're all within the same shooting position, with eight of them going to the keeper's right, so the far corner, essentially. Him cutting on his left is inevitable. The bad things are going to happen to you if you allow him to cut on, onto his left foot. He's, he's, yeah, he's almost as predictable as Iron Robin, but you can't stop it. A little bit like Iron Robin, so... Yeah, what a player! What a player! I, I'm good to that. Um, I mean, I'm good to that. Burnley are, are going to go up because players like Manuel Benson, um, Zaruri, these are players with so much quality. You want to see them. You want to watch them week in, week out. Um, we won't get a chance to do that. But they've got so much ability. I think. It, I think there's one point where Benson picked up the ball, um, and it looked like uh, the defender had got the better uh, the better of him. He caught up with him, but Benson. Another turn of pace, knocks it around him and he gets fouled. He's just, yeah, an unbelievable player with an unbelievable left foot. And I'm looking forward to seeing how he develops over the next year because, well, we've seen it with this quality time and time again. That 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 goal was just unreal. Just unreal. A tight game that Burnley didn't really look like they were going to score in. Needed that moment of quality and Benson shows up. What a, what a finish. Yeah, he is quite an interesting player because he's made more substitute appearances than starts this season. He's only featured in... Th- 13 starting 11s this season Mm. but he is excellent and that left foot is just a wand and it's quite strange Justin that you compared him to Iron Robin I've written down in my notes he's a bit like a Belgian Iron Robin (laughs) because he can be a bit one-footed but it's still really difficult for defenders to stop him even though you know he's going to try and cut in and get the ball on that left foot he still manages to do it but his finishing is incredible he scored 10 goals this season from a total expected goals of four. That is insane. It's unsurprisingly the best in the division, but it just shows how often he has managed to score that type of goal where he cuts in, hits, I was going to say hopeful, but you know what I mean, from the, for the lack of a better term, he just tries to curl it into the top corner from outside the box and he's just done it. So he is a phenomenal player and he's also a great weapon for Burnley to have off the bench in the Premier League, isn't he? I think he will feature for them off the bench even more next season and he's a brilliant option to call upon, isn't he, when they're drawing a game or a goal down because he can just pull something out of nothing like we've seen so many times this season. Back on the game though, I thought Blackburn actually played pretty well and were the better side for large sections of the game. Just didn't create any big chances and that has been an issue I've had with them all season, hasn't it? There was a penalty shout right at the end of the game for a handball by Ashley Barnes, which certainly looked more handball than not handball. But it is another win for Burnley in the East Lancashire derby, their sixth successive victory in this fixture. Some of the footage after the game was... 
tasty, <laughs> Blackburn <laughs> fans being absolutely livid with Josh Brownhill lifting the trophy in front of them. Lyle Foster celebrating right in a fan's face after the final whistle. Sorbel Thomas having a disagreement with Jack Cork. Vincent Company's come out of it looking very good with you know Twitter accounts like... I don't know, Barstool football praising him for being humble in victory. And of course, Burnley are now champions. And I mean, they've been champions in waiting now since virtually Christmas, haven't they? Mm -hmm. And we've waxed lyrical about how good they've been, how dominant they've been. And you've always said, Justin, you don't think the best championship side ever. But I'm interested to know, where do you rank them in that regard? I, I mean, that Reading team, the points record, you can't put them above them. And that team was built on free transfers as well. Free transfers and minimal transfer fees. That was a, a ridiculously well-drilled team. This Burnley team is up there. I, again, maybe put it in my top three. I'm not going as far back as sort of Sunderland in 98 uh, or Fulham in 2000 because I can't remember football that far back. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm looking potentially at that lesser team in the 13-14 season. Again, another 4-4-2 side, very well drilled, very good at breaking forwards. Jamie Vardy, Dave Nugent up front, really good team. I'd maybe put them above them. They can still match their record, I think, of 102 points. Um, but I, again, I'd put that Burnley team above those. And probably this Burnley team didn't cost as much as that Leicester team did either. That was an expensively assembled Leicester City side so yeah certainly in my top three I, w- I would say maybe second but it is a, it is a bit of a coin toss with that Leicester team um, but they, they've been brilliant and you know, say what you want about the finances they had to spend their money they had the money in the bank to spend um, and they've they've spent smartly they've not thrown money at players they've they've recruited really really smartly um which i think is the key difference of of teams having money some teams don't spend it very well as we've seen with the likes of derby and reading yeah well you're spot on justin they sold a lot of talent for a lot of money in the summer so if they'd be stupid not to spend that money wouldn't they so it's not like they've come down kept hold of all their premier league talent and then spent a shed load of money mm. which is why the parachute payment fc argument is just a load of bollocks if you ask me but i think they're the best team the championship has seen it's a shame really that they've dropped off in the last few games because i don't think their points total will necessarily reflect how brilliant they've been but the fact's They've become the first team in championship history to be promoted with seven games or more remaining is the key stat for me in terms of how dominant they have been. I also think the way they've done it is important because they have dominated sides all season. They've played beautiful football along the way and have been a joy to watch. And when you look back at the best teams the championship has seen, that Reading side of 2006 and... Um, Fulham from last season maybe Fulham's a bad example for what I'm about to say or that Leicester side from 2014 Burnley's football has just been a step above the rest of them maybe not that Fulham side as I say but the point remains they've played some beautiful beautiful football along the way between October and March they were simply irresistible it didn't look like they were going to drop a point for a long time did they and just about every player who's played 30 or more games for them is a contender for team of the season in their respective position they're a remarkable side who i've loved watching in the championship this season and i think in the years to come i'll look back on this burnley team quite fondly and say it was a real pleasure being able to comment on them for a whole year i do feel a bit sorry for blackburn fans losing to your pick rivals at home and then having them celebrate winning the title in your own stadium is 
I mean, that's as bad as it gets, really, isn't it? Just imagine, Justin, if that happened to you, Forrest winning the championship at Pride Park and them celebrating in the stadium afterwards. It must be bloody awful. But yeah. Blackburn are eighth. Remain outside the playoffs on goal difference. Without a win in eight, they've got Luton at home and then Millwall away on the final day. What are you thinking, Justin? <laughs> what am I thinking? I, I don't know with this Blackburn team because I look at this game against Burnley and I, like we said, I thought they were really good. Their game plan worked. They nullified the strengths that Burnley have. They made it difficult for balls to find their way into the channels. Out of possession, I thought they were really, really good with the ball. They've left me wanting more all season. I think that's why you've suggested that they'll drop off and that's why the data doesn't really back up their position. It's their ability to to edge out these tight games. It's their ability to overcome defeats and that's probably why finishing in the top six might be a season too soon for this team under Thomason. They're very much a team in transition. They've had a very good transition season. Um, but my hopes of them finishing the top six are fading because of that inability to to... to assert themselves going forwards there's a lot of endeavour but there's a real lack of quality um, and I can't really remember too often Ben Brereton Diaz having a massive impact in the game for example I thought Sammy Schmodix was uh, was lively but didn't really offer anything clear cut or um, not clinical but with conviction in that final third so again as I said I'm just left wanting a hell of a lot more from this team going forwards and that's why it's difficult to see them pipping the likes of Sunderland, Coventry, um, trying to think who else is up there. There's so many teams grouped together, even maybe even Millwall. They just lack what those two, those three sides have. I know Millwall have dropped off a little bit, but certainly Coventry, Sunderland have got those players that can win them games. Blackburn don't, and that's the key difference here. In the, when you've got when time's running out and you're in tight games, you need players who can spark something. Diallo, Sunderland, Gilkeres, Coventry, Blackburn. I don't know. Well, that's my point. That's the point I've been making all season. They've lacked the cutting edge that you'd usually associate with a top six team. And I thought Sorba Thomas coming in would kind of change that for them. But, I mean, he's averaging a chance a game, a chance created a game, which for his standards is really poor. He was creating shed loads for Huddersfield last season. But Ben Brereton-Diaz has been off it for a long time now. And when you don't have those two as examples of players who are out of form going forwards, then you're going to struggle, especially when your remaining games are Luton at home and then Millwall away on the mm -hmm. final day. Two very good, well-drilled sides. So it's difficult to see Blackburn being able to break them down and get three points from those two. So for me, I, I didn't fancy Blackburn to get in the playoffs anyway, and I certainly don't now. Um, and then on Monday night, Luton came from a goal down to beat Middlesbrough 2-1. Third v fourth would usually be a massive game in most circumstances, but this wasn't really. Both sides are virtually guaranteed to be in the playoffs. It was more a matter of who finishes third or fourth, if that really matters. It was still a good game, though. Uh, the big talking point was the penalty decision. Carlton Morris being brought down by Borough goalkeeper Zach Steffen. Did you think it was a penalty, Justin? I, I thought it was a penalty. Upon seeing the replay, Cotton Morris has done one of the, the greatest exaggerations um, I think you could possibly possibly do because even two or three replays, I'm like, well, it's a penalty. He's made contact with him. But there's a certain angle you see where it's where it's minimal contact. And I think that's the thing. It's a soft penalty. It's a bit like the John Swift one at the weekend. There's contact, but it's soft. And it's probably on the softer side of wanting to give it. Don't blame the officials for, for, for giving it as a penalty. But 
Yeah, maybe maybe the factor of Morrison running at pace is is a thing here, and it just edges him off it. But for me, it's on the softer side of it being a penalty. Not a dive because there is contact, but not enough contact for him to th- not throw himself to the floor. But yeah, be be a bit more of a charlatan with his with his uh, yeah outcome. So do you think it was a penalty? No, it's on the softer side. I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't have it given was. it. If, no, I was convinced seeing it over oh, okay right. seeing it live and then a couple of replays I'm like that's a penalty but then there's a replay where it's where you're face on with Morris, uh, Morris and Stefan um and he there is there is contact but it's minimal so it's on the softer side that I wouldn't give fine I think there was contact but not enough Morris not enough for Morris to go down it's not a penalty for me even when I saw it in real time I didn't think it was a penalty I think he's just gone down easily I personally believe it's possible for a player to go down without much contact and it not be a dive it's a thin line but it is possible and I think this was a good example of that I've seen some people suggest he should be given a two-game ban which I think is a bit drastic I mean they could do that if they want Luton have got two games left and are virtually guaranteed to finish third so I think the decision was soft I don't think it's a penalty I also don't think it's a travesty like a lot of people have been making out so I don't think you should be given a two-game ban. I don't think you should be charged with war crimes like some people have been treating it <laughs> on social media. Um, I just think it is it is what it is, really. Middlesbrough were excellent, and a loss for them felt very harsh, especially in the way it happened. However, Michael Carrick can take a lot of encouragement from his side's performances. Can Luton, a big win against the team who is undoubtedly their main rivals in the playoffs. When you were watching this, Justin, did you get the sense we could be watching this game as the playoff final in a month's time? <laughs> maybe maybe not, mainly because Middlesbrough rested quite a few players. Uh, Luton rested a couple. Um, so I don't think we saw the, the best of both teams. So it's quite hard to say whether they'll overcome their opponents in the playoff. That being said, you'd expect this to be the final. Um, and based on the potential uh, volatility that has stemmed from this game, with that Morris uh, foul penalty, it's, you know, adds a bit of needle to what could be a, a yeah very interesting playoff final. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe not. I'm I'm more on the fence with it just because I'm not convinced by the playoffs. I think any team coming in late from the playoffs does deserve a you know not a favourites tag, but a, certainly a we'll, we'll keep an eye on those. So yeah, not not too convinced just yet. Got to be said, there's quite a difference between Wembley and Kettleworth Road as well, isn't there? So when you're looking at that game and think, oh, this could be a playoff final, it's, uh, I suppose, a bit strange in that respect. Got to be said, Middlesbrough's injuries are really racking up, by the way. Del Fry, Marcus Force, Tommy Smith, Aaron Ramsey, Riley McGree and Paddy McNair all out. In a way, I suppose it's not a bad thing, but that's because they've got a couple of weeks off but then you've got to remember Michael Carrick will be desperate to have as many of those players back as possible for when the playoffs actually come around because it's not too long now Justin let's take a quick break after that we'll talk about some of the games coming up in the championship this week and then I'll finish up with some of the news
Welcome back to the Second Tier Podcast. Justin, let's do some previews and make some predictions ahead of another big weekend in the Championship. So in each preview episode of the Second Tier, Justin and I each pick a team we think is guaranteed to win in the Championship this coming weekend and also an outsider to win. So plenty to play for, Justin. This is the second last weekend of the Championship season. So uh, you, you you give me your banker while I wipe away the tears from my eyes. <laughs> I've gone with West Brom now. I made these notes before I watched the their game against Sheffield United, but I'm going to take a Norwich-heavy um, take on this. Norwich are garbage, aren't they? They are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen some... It's always uh, a good start to a prediction. <laughs> yeah, let, let's be honest. Norwich, are, they're, they're not great. Um, and we've seen some good performances of late from from the baggies. I think even the Sunderland game, there was some you know, impressive moments. Um, I know that we, we mentioned earlier on in the episode that depends what West Brom team turns up. I would expect a West Brom team to turning up against Norwich, thinking, right, there's weaknesses here to exploit. We saw them against um, Swansea. If we play with any sort of intensity, they're going to crumble. I would hope that Norwich take that. Um, <clears throat> that ethos going into this game because in, in my opinion I think Norwich will not be able to match any sort of intensity because they've shown that they're not really asked. I think would be the the, the, the kinder way of saying it um, and as I was saying I expect Norwich to struggle with the, the directness of this West Brom side and there's going to be a reaction from this defeat to Sheffield United as well because there's a lot of poor individual performances so in terms of bouncing back getting three points I'm expecting a comfortable 2-0 win and a clean sheet. That being said, football's not as easy and straightforward as that. And with West Brom being in must-win territory, it's going to add an extra edge to Norwich, who is sinking without any fight whatsoever. And then you've got uh, David Wagner and Carlos Corbran, who are two very pragmatic managers. Corbran is better at being more pragmatic than Wagner. And he's a bit more of a tactician, I think, than Wagner. So that's the, that's the extra edge I'm taking into this one. Just don't think Norwich are capable of, of handling West Brom if West Brom go in with their tails up in this game. It really does depend on that. That being said, I would expect any team at this point to beat Norwich. So I'm going with West Brom. Yeah, strange for us to essentially rule out a side who are three points off the top six to rule them out of finishing in the top six. But it's just not going to happen, is it? And that's simply down to the fact they've got one win in nine have Norwich. So while West Brom have been a bit of an unpredictable team recently, Norwich have been predictable and not in the right way because they just look so far off it now. Also a meeting of two former Huddersfield managers, isn't it? Kind of yeah. the the one who really took over from the mantle of David Wagner. There were a couple of managers in between, but none of them really had anything to write home about, did they? So the two best Huddersfield managers of recent years meeting up here in what's going to be a very interesting game and a must-win for both sides. Probably more so for West Brom because I, see, I just can't see it happening for Norwich. So, yeah, huge game. Banker for me this weekend is Sunderland to beat Watford at the Stadium of Light on Saturday afternoon. Now, this is a huge game for Sunderland. They've put themselves in the driving seat for a playoff place after going seven games unbeaten and it's probably their best form of the season and you know, just dipping into the old big bag of cliches, they have hit form at the right time. It's quite incredible, really, that this is the case, considering they have been absolutely battered with injuries. We already know about the likes of Roster at Corey Evans and Aji Elise, amongst others, who have been out for a while now, but their defence has been severely hampered. They've been playing 
young Trey Hume at centre-back, who's a right-back by trade, and Luke Nine, who's traditionally a midfielder. Despite that, they've only conceded three goals in four games, so they've been doing extremely well, and they continue to play arguably the most attractive football in the league. There's also going to be a 40,000-plus crowd at the Stadium of Light for this game, so I expect them to be in good voice for what is a huge game for Sunderland and their chances of getting back to the Premier League at the first time of asking. And they'd be expecting to beat Watford. I can't recall too many teams, or too many times for that matter, where you'd expect a promoted team to beat a relegated team, but these are two sides who have had very different seasons. Sunderland are arguably the biggest overachievers. Watford, one of the biggest underachievers. They've won Four points from a possible 18 of Watford. Just three wins since mid-January. Their season is well and truly over. Watford fans can't wait for it to end. And that's because the club's an absolute mess. The players don't look motivated. And it's a big summer ahead for them. In the here and now, though, I don't think many Watford fans will expect a result. I don't think they expect a result against four-fifths of the teams in the division at the moment. They haven't got much to get encouraged about from what we've seen recently. Despite all the talent at their disposal, they just look absolutely miles off it. So I'm going for a Sunderland win this weekend, Justin. I think the only thing that would make me question it is, is Sunderland's home record. Uh, that being said, this Watford team, a bit like Norwich, are just not with it. And I think if you play with any sort of intensity and aggression um, and, and really sort of dial down... Um, and push, and maybe the atmosphere is going to help with the Sunderland as well against against Watford. Um, then it's very difficult to see Watford having any any opportunity in this game. Um, and then you mix that with the quality that Sunderland have going forwards. Again, a lot better drilled than Watford. So yeah, I'm going to stick with you on that one. Thank you. My outsider for the championship this weekend is Huddersfield to win away at Cardiff at midday on Sunday. Now. I acknowledge it's a bit tricky talking about this game because Cardiff are obviously playing on Thursday night after this episode goes out. But either way, I think it plays into the hands of a Huddersfield win. If Cardiff beat Rotherham, they're essentially safe and could take the foot off the gas. If they draw, probably also safe. If they lose, then it's a confidence-knocking defeat because the game on Thursday night is a massive six-pointer and Huddersfield have everything to play for. I essentially look at this and... It's a must-win game for Huddersfield. They were looking like they could stay up quite easily after a huge upturn in form where they won three on the bounce. Now, they've since failed to win in their last three, which has seen them get dragged right back into it. Although, they have won 11 points from a possible 18, which is actually really good form for a side fighting relegation. And I suppose it says a lot about how far gone they were that they've had an upturn in form like this and they're still just a point outside the bottom three. That's how deep in the trenches they were prior to this miraculous upturn. But looking at the game against Cardiff, I don't think there's much between the two sides. Both have been fighting relegation all season because their squads aren't very good and it's taken both their third manager to actually get things going in some form of the right direction. So... If there's an obvious outsider which is going to win this weekend, I reckon it'll be Huddersfield. What do you think, Justin? Let's play in the factor as well that Huddersfield have had an extra few days off, shall we say, compared that to Cardiff. Obviously, Huddersfield didn't play at the weekend, um, which is going to help help matters. I think you know, a bit of rest, get players back, uh, get back to full fitness, and yeah, it's going to play a factor. And obviously, Cardiff have got they played last weekend and they've got the game against Rotherham in midweek as well. So 
that might that might have a heavy impact on on players being fresh. And Cardiff looked tired last weekend as well. They looked really tired and they they faded throughout the game. Huddersfield and Neil Warnock, he's going to sense that. He's I don't think he he lays out all of his cards on the table. And I think the style of football in in, in that Huddersfield have been very compact and sitting very deep. Um, we might see a bit of a change up, especially as the game wears on, where Huddersfield crank it up a notch and, and Cardiff are unable to match that. Uh, yeah, match that, not intensity, but ferocity that uh, any Warnock team can bring. That is a very interesting point, Justin, which I probably should have made, but didn't. <laughs> Huddersfield having a week and a half off, whereas Cardiff have had, how many games is it? It must be four games in that time, mustn't it? Mm-hmm. That is pretty astounding, really, isn't it? So, yeah, I think that could definitely play a factor into this one. Uh, Justin, what's your outsider for the championship this weekend? I was so distracted by Cardiff and Huddersfield, I completely forgot about mine. Um, but I've gone with Preston to beat Sheffield United. I did have a lot of information on Preston here, but given that Sheffield United have just won promotion, and given the last time they won promotion, Paul Coots fell asleep in the Crucible. Um, Paul Coots fell asleep in the Crucible. Richard Stearman was seen drinking pints uh, from a very lofty height or, or dropping beer into his into his mouth from a very lofty height. I think Sheffield United will be in second gear, shall we say, politely. And I think Preston having something to play for will come with an intensity. And given that the dressing room was full of booze uh, during the, the live pictures from Sky Sports, um, and even Ollie McBurney and George Baldock coming out with a beer to do a, an interview with David Prutton and co., I don't think Sheffield United are going to be match fit Again, to put it politely. So I think Preston might, the intensity that Preston will bring might help them. And I think Paul Heckebottom might may, may rotate the team a little bit to bring in some of the youngsters to, to get some game time as well, because he's done that on quite a few occasions this season. Stylistically, I think there'll be a match for Sheffield United. They're, Preston, interesting as well, they've won the most aerial duels this season, which means midfield's going to be where the game is won, to, to throw the cliche in. And in midfield three of Ben Whiteman, Ali McCann, Josh Honimer or Ryan Edson, whoever's going to be in, I think that's going to play a massive factor in, in, in deciding this game. I think it'll be a tight game, um, but I think Preston will edge it 1-0. And it's, yeah, as I say, mainly down to pretty bad hangover for the Blades. <laughs> well, it's certainly an interesting look at it, but I'm not sure I'm going to disagree, particularly, Justin. I think Preston have got everything to play for still. They still will fancy their chances of getting a playoff place, despite it looking a bit out there at this point that they can do that whereas Sheffield United their season is virtually over now isn't it they can't finish at top of the table they're guaranteed to finish second now so this is it so at this point they're just fighting to gain as many points as possible and is that enough of a carrot of a stick in front of them compared to Preston who have got plenty to play for still so yeah I'm not going to disagree with you on that one Justin now it's time for this Yes, it's time for the news and the EFL award winners have been announced. Before we carry on, I must emphasise these results are completely meaningless. The much more prestigious second tier awards will be announced in two weeks time. But if you're interested in what the EFL decided to go with, Drew Brackpom won Championship Player of the Season. Alex Scott won Championship Young Player of the Season. Vincent Company won Manager of the Season. Ishmael Assar won Goal of the Season for when he scored from the halfway line against West Brom without giving anything away about our goal of the season, Justin. 
there seemed to be a lot of surprise that this one was chosen as the best goal in the whole of the EFL from the past season. I was astonished. I was absolutely astonished because it didn't even win goal of the month in August. It was beaten by a better goal that we can go into greater detail on when we decide our awards, but um, it rhymes with Schmad Schmotz. Um, he was the scorer of that goal. Um, I maybe was a bit harsh on Twitter saying it, there was no technique to the goal. I mean, every footballer's got technique, but if you're asking me how often that goal is replicated and how often it's been re- replicated this season alone, you only have to Google to see how often it's been done. Stephen Humphreys did it for Hearts in February. Alfie May's done it for Cheltenham. Connor Wickham's done it for Forest Green Rovers. That type of goal happens five or six times a season. Keepers off his line, player punts it. That's it. It's a it's a, a good goal, a well-hit goal, but goal of the season, you're having a laugh, surely. <laughs> I take it you're not a fan of that decision no. then. Um, I think it's a spectacular goal. I've seen a lot of people acting like he's had virtually an open goal, which I think is very unfair. The technique for him to hit it so flat with so much pace and most importantly over David Button's head, it takes a hell of a lot of skill and it's not getting the credit it deserves for me. It was... Some people are making it out like it was easy for a lot of people to score. And if that was the case, we'd be seeing goals like that every week. I accept that we see five or six of those goals each season, but I still think people have been doing it a disservice. Having said that, I don't think it's goal of the season. I can think of at least three off the top of my head, which I think are more deserving simply because we've had a remarkable standard of spectacular goals this season and there have been some which I would simply put as some of the best I've ever seen at the championship level I'm not sure Ishmael Sars would be in that conversation particularly so Sars goal is still beautiful though I, I do think people have been very harsh with that one meanwhile the EFL team of the season has raised a few eyebrows as well it's Coventry's Ben Wilson in goal a defence of Burnley's Connor Roberts and Ian Martin Sheffield United's Anil Ekbert Hodzic and Luton's Tom Lockyer in midfield it's Bristol City's Alex Scott and then Burnley's Josh Brownhill and bizarrely winger Nathan Teller and then a front three of Sheffield United's Illaman and Dai, Middlesbrough's Chubrakpom and Coventry's Victor Jokerez. Just want to point out when, when I say bizarrely Nathan Teller I mean it's a bit strange that he's been put in a midfield three mm-hmm. when he's a forward. It's a bit Garth Crooks isn't it but Justin again <laughs> without giving anything away for our team of the season what did you make of the EFL team of the season? I suppose the best way for you to answer this question without giving anything away is tell me who you were surprised to see included. Well, mainly Ben Wilson. He's he's been good for Coventry. And he obviously has kept a lot of clean sheets, but he's not been one of the best keepers in the division. And I know a lot of people measure keepers on keeping clean sheets, and that's absolutely fair, but it means having a good defence in front of you. If you talk about how many shots he's faced this season, has he faced as many shots as Victor Janssen, for example, or Thomas Kaminsky? Um, trying to think of other players, other goalkeepers who have performed incredibly well. well Wes Fodderingham's been unreal as well, and he's kept clean sheets. So... Yeah, I don't think clean sheets is a, is a fair measurable of, of, of a goalkeeper. And it's not a criticism of Ben Wilson. I think he's had a very good team in front of him that's not, you know, put, it's not allowed shots to, to, to rein in on him. So, yeah, that, that was a bit of a surprise. And obviously, I just think the positions throughout the, all the EFL teams, the Leagues 2 and 1, were a bit weird. Because um, I think there was a centre-half playing left-back in the League 1 team of the year and a left-back playing centre-half. So, yeah, maybe just uh, double-check that before you sign it off. 
maybe next they time. also spelt Mads Anderson's name wrong in the League One <laughs> team of the season. Okay. They put Anderson as the English way when actually he, he has an E in the sun bit. So mm-hmm. that was that was a bit sloppy on their behalf. I'm not really sure how that's happened. Also, don't understand how Josh Windass has won uh, has been named as the best striker in the division in League One, despite Johnson Clark Harris being in the running for player of the season. But he didn't get in the team of the season. So I don't understand that. But that's League One. Who cares? Um, I was initially a bit surprised to see Ben Wilson in goal. He's had a very good season. But I initially thought the main reason he was included was because he has the most clean sheets in the division. I wouldn't choose him in my team of the year. But I don't think it's totally outrageous because he's a very good keeper. And when you dive into it a bit more... I, I think there are only three real contenders for goalkeeper this season. Why are you laughing? Did you made a pun? It was a good pun. Sorry, carry on. What did when I say? In, when you dive into it, <laughs> I didn't even realise I said that. Um, pun not intended. Um, I think there's only real, really three contenders who I can think of, and Ben Wilson is amongst that three. So I don't think it's disgraceful that he's in there. There was also a defender not included in the team who I think is a bad omission. Regular listeners might be able to guess who that one is, but we'll probably be able to tell you more about that in two weeks' time when we do our team of the season. The one who I was most surprised about was Alex Scott. I can already hear furious Bristol City fans tapping away at their phones in anger. He's a wonderful footballer, has so much talent, and I think will go on to play for England, be a regular in the Premier League, etc. He's a brilliant, brilliant player, without a doubt, one of the best we've ever seen uh, in terms of young players at Championship level. Has he been one of the top two midfielders in the championship this season? No. I say top two because the FL team essentially has four forwards in it. And I can think of at least five midfielders off the top of my head who have had better seasons in my view. I reckon his inclusion is based more off reputation and how he's been linked with various Premier League sides. So mm-hmm. a wonderfully talented player. Cannot emphasise that enough. One of the best midfielders in the division this season not for me doesn't matter anyway the EFL awards are tin pop compared to the second tier awards which will be coming in two weeks time let's move on Justin Yorkshire Live is reporting Sheffield United are moving on from Dozy Mabusi's takeover attempt as the focus turns towards planning next season he's failed to keep up with a number of agreements with current owner Prince Abdullah if Sheffield United weren't getting promoted this would be extremely bad news because they needed a takeover to save them from probably going into administration but Premier League money means that's essentially not going to be a problem. A takeover would still be very helpful, though. Yeah, they need that clearing up really as soon as possible. And you don't want to be carrying that over into a Premier League campaign where you need to start recruitment and planning very, very quickly. I mean, Heckingbottom was alluding to budgets last night in his post-match interviews with with, um, David Putin and co, suggesting that there might not be a lot of money to spend. And that's maybe to be expected. They do have a good squad, an expensive squad mainly from their Premier League season a couple of, a couple of years ago. Are they, you know, is it good enough? Are they good enough to, 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 to stay up? Remains to be seen, but there's not, clearly not going to be a lot of wiggle room in terms of budget. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it develops or how things develop over the next month. Because again, recruitment's got to start very, very early and you've got to start speaking to players pretty much now. Now now promotion's you know, settled. Got a lot of contracts to sort as well. So, yeah, they need a takeover of sorts to, to get to get moving very, very quickly. Otherwise, it's going to, I think, hamper hamper what could be a, you know, a good campaign next year. Yeah, that's the big concern at this point, isn't it? They need to start identifying targets and 
how much money have they actually got? I'm not sure Sheffield United know themselves at the moment. So that's going to be really interesting. But it's not really a surprise that this takeover has fallen through. We heard plenty of concerning reports about Dozy, Mabusi. Um, how many of them are true? I don't know. We, really, we can only treat them as reports. Having said that, he has reportedly been asked numerous times to, you know, provide evidence to the EFL that he was a fit and proper owner. And from what I've seen, it seems like he's really taken his time in getting back to them on that. And apparently his relationship with Prince Abdullah, Sheffield United owner, is rock bottom, essentially, because he's taken so long to, you know, get stuff over to him, mm-hmm. which isn't a great way of going about things, is it? If you're taking ages to respond to what I assume are simply simple things for him to respond very, to. Very so, important things as well. Very important things as well, yeah. So, yeah, I'm not surprised this one's fallen through and I imagine there will be more conversations over the next few months of more takeover talk for Sheffield United. Sky Sports say the EFL won't be taking any action against Burnley over accusations they fielded a weakened team against Reading earlier this month. Huddersfield reportedly complained to the EFL about it after the Clarets drew the game. No surprise there. We didn't think anything was going to come of that, did we? In injury news, Blackburn midfielder Tyler Morton will miss their remaining games with a fractured foot. The 20-year-old who is on loan from Liverpool had played nearly every game for them this season. Watford defender James Morris has signed a new contract which will keep him at Vicarage Road until 2026. And the dates for the playoffs have now been confirmed. The first legs will be on Saturday the 13th and Sunday the 14th. The second legs will be on Tuesday the 16th and Wednesday the 17th. The final will be on Saturday the 27th, but we knew that already. Huge gap between the second legs and the final, isn't it? I know it's always like that, but it just hmm. it just seems massive when you actually look at it like that. As I was going to say, what can you do in that time as well? You can't really train with intensity. Your match sharpness maybe after a week and a half might drop a little bit. So it's almost like coming into a game straight after an international break where you're not quite at your peak freshness. Um, I mean, I'm not a sports science, sports scientist, so I'm probably completely wrong. But that's the very plain thinking that I'd be taking into it. I'd want to play the next week, if that makes sense. You want to carry that good thing, that good feeling over from a from a big win in that second, second leg, don't you? Obviously, plenty of time to fester on it, I guess. I've got more concerns for the fans who will probably be dying with anticipation and nerves because it's a long time to be at work into just thinking about the playoff <laughs> final for 10 days or so. So whoever gets there, we've got, we're keeping you in our thoughts. We'll put it that way. Now it's time for this. Diddy? Yes, sir. You mind telling me why the hell you never mentioned this before? Yes, it's time for Diddy or Didn't He. This is the part of the show where we have 10 players with various connections to the championship and a club. All we've got to do is guess whether they played for that club or not. He's got to have made a senior appearance for them. We take it in turns to guess them and we keep score as the season goes on. This week, it's Justin's turn to guess and my turn to provide the players and clubs. Although, Justin is simply competing for pride at this point after I was crowned the Diddy or Didn't He champion 2022. 2023. The scores are 136, 125 to myself. This is your final go of the season, Justin, so there's nothing for you to play for, really. And since that is the case, I've taken this opportunity to showboat, just to show my utter lack of respect for you. The following players have all played for your beloved Derby County at some point in their careers. So surely, (laughs) 
You should do pretty well at this, and it would be quite embarrassing if you didn't, wouldn't it? I, I guess it would, but I could just be like Norwich. I, you know, I might just be sacking it off, waiting for next season. Um, the fans have turned against me. Family turned against me. It's it's not it's not been a good end to the season for me. No, it really hasn't. The fact the fans have turned against you. It's just all gone completely wrong for Justin Peach FC at this point. Do you want the first blow? Yeah, 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 yeah. Throw it, throw it my way. Tyrone Ming, Tyrone Mears, rather, and Wigan. Did he or didn't he? No, did not play for Wigan. You'd be correct. Completely made it up. Uh, one out of one for Justin Peach. Next up, Paul Pesky Salido and QPR. Did he or didn't he? Played for Fulham, but I don't think he played for QPR. Five appearances on loan in the year 2000. <laughs> Incredible. 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 Stephen Bywater and Hull. Did he or didn't he? Played for everybody. <laughs> He's played for everybody. Um, now I'm doubting myself because of the pesky Salido thing. Um, there's probably... And, a, and the previous year. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and this the game. last couple of weeks, yeah. Um that's probably a loan spell in 2002, wasn't there, when he was a, a wee boy, Stephen Bywater. So I reckon like seven appearances on loan. Yeah, Four appearances on loan, actually, in 1999. He's actually been around for a long yes, time. That's a very Stephen time. Bywater. Jeez. Two out of three. Next up, Craig Forsyth and Sheffield United. Did he or didn't he? Should know this. He's been at Derby for ten years. He was at Watford before that, and he was at Dundee before that. Surely there was not a spell up to Sheffield United. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say no. You'd be correct. Made it up. Um, I was hoping you thought he may have had a loan spell when he was at Watford because he didn't re really play too much for them, did he? Mm -hmm. Next up, uh, three out of four. By the way, Steve Howard and Sheffield Wednesday. Did he or didn't he? Nah, he didn't play for Wednesdays. Like Northampton, Luton. Leicester, there wasn't a spell at Wednesday. He scored his first. He scored a very good goal for Derby against Sheffield Wednesday. Mm. Yeah, uh, but no, he did not play for Wednesday. Surely not. Eight appearances on loan in 2013. 2013. Yep. What? I think. I think bizarrely, he left Leicester City to go to Hartlepool, and then went on loan from Hartlepool upper division to Sheffield Wednesday. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. There's no logic. That's yeah, incredible. A bit, a bit of a strange one. I, I, at least I think I've got that right. But it's three out of five. Next up, Ryan Shotton and Barnsley. Did he or didn't he? Yeah, I think he played for Barnsley. 30 appearances on loan in 2009. You are correct. He's had a few loan spells, to be fair, hasn't he? Mm. Four out of six. Gregor's Raziak and Bolton. Did he or didn't he? Ooh, Gregor's Raziak. If the kids want to really... Delve into some YouTube clips of a footballer. Watch Rezet, watch Gregor Rezet, one of the best number nines ever in the championship, I think. With the technical ability with the ball at his feet. Unbelievable. Big guy as well. But he did play for Bolton. Sorry. Yeah, he did. I know that one. He did. Seven appearances on loan in 2008. Had a bizarre move to Spurs as well, didn't he? He was at, he was at Derby. He was like 23, 24, and then moved to Spurs for like 3 million and... Of course, he barely played for them. So it was just, it's one of those which weird, is a weird, really yeah. strange move. Um, 
and didn't really make much sense. So five out of seven, this is actually going all right. Robbie Savage and Brighton, did he or didn't he? Yeah, he had a loan spell there. He, had a, he fell out with Paul Julin, went on loan to Brighton for like a month and then came back and was unreal. Completely passed me by. Six appearances on loan in 2008. And you're quite right, on loan from Derby. Six out of eight. I think if you're doing a pointless quiz on Robbie Savage's clubs, I think Brighton would be a pointless answer every day of the week, wouldn't it? Um, six out of eight. Tom Lawrence and crew. Diddy or Dinty? Uh, no, I... Tom Lawrence has come up quite a few times on these, or at least Craig Bryce, and I don't think he's played for Crew. I think that would be something that stares out. Don't think Man United send a lot of players to Crew either, so I'm going to say no. You'd be correct. Made it up. Did have a spell at Carlisle, I will point out, mm. and I was tempted to include that, but wasn't sure if you if you used that already this season. Final one, seven out of nine. Chris Baird. And Watford, did he or didn't he? Berdinho. What a player. What a player. I think he's been a fan favourite every club he's been at. Um, Chris Baird and Watford. I can't recall anything before Fulham, but I can just picture him in a Watford shirt. <laughs> Sorry, not, not not Fulham. He was at Southampton. He did come through at Southampton, so I don't think he played for Watford. So I'm going to say no, he did not play for Watford. Eight appearances on loan in 2004. Well, good. I'm not sure if... Seven out of ten is a good score there, considering it's Derby-themed players, Justin. Yeah, but Steve Howard in Hartlepool, and so Sheffield Wednesday is an incredible thing. Maybe should have got the pesky Salida one, but that's still quite random. But then the Chris Baird one, that surprised me. Yeah, I'd have thought you'd just know every Derby player like the back of your hand, considering you claim to be a bigger championship expert than myself. But we shall leave that there. Uh, but so that means... What's the scores? The final score for Justin Peach this season is 132, but it's pales in comparison to my mighty score of 136 with a game in hand for myself next week. So I continue to wander off as the strong Diddy or Dinty champion of 2022-2023. And yeah, that's it. That's been Diddy or Dinty. This has been the Second Tier Podcast. We'll be back again on Sunday to talk about a massive weekend in the Championship. Playoffs, relegation battle, two games left. Now it is truly business end of the season. It it doesn't get much more business end than this until, of course, the final day of the season. But you get what I mean. It's a big, big weekend in Championship football. So don't make sure you don't miss Sunday's episode, ladies and gentlemen. And we look forward to seeing you then. This has been the Second Tier Podcast. I have been Ryan Dilks. I've been Justin Peach. And a big thank you for listening. <laughs>